Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me by turning to Exodus chapter 28. Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapters 28 and 29. If you're joining us this morning, first of all, welcome. We're delighted that you are here with us to worship. For some time, we have been going through a series studying the book of Exodus. And in recent weeks, uh, we have come to uh, the sanctuary. We have seen that it was God's desire that he would have a sanctuary, a dwelling place in the midst of his people. And so it was. Uh, The Lord gave Moses on the mountain instructions for a tabernacle, a kind of uh, portable tent so that he could take up residence and dwell in the very center of his people's lives. And yet, as we look at this, we, still, we see that there is still this, this problem uh, that you see really any time God condescends and he makes his presence known, and that while God draws near to his people, his people are in a matter of speaking, still held at arm's length. We saw that back in chapter 3 where the Lord encounters Moses, or Moses rather encounters the Lord at the burning bush, and God says, do not come near. There is a danger that associates the Lord's presence as he condescends and Uh, comes to earth. Well, you have the same thing here in the tabernacle and that the Lord manifests his glory and yet sinful man is hindered from drawing near to God. The Lord comes down, he dwells among men and yet even God's own people, the ones that he has called out out of all the other nations are forbidden from, from coming and having the kind of direct, unmediated access that you would hope to have uh, with this great redeeming God. Well, that's what brings us to chapter 28. Uh, You have a description of the priests. Uh, More specifically, you have a description of the, the priestly garments that these men would wear. Two chapters are given to the priests. You have in chapter 28 uh, a description of the garments that they would wear. And then in chapter 29, you have a whole week's worth of preparatory sacrifices before they were prepared to really fully enter the priesthood. Before we consider the significance of this, I want to go ahead and read chapter 28 if you direct your attention to the reading of God's word. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. 
They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth." As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the, the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span at its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be its first row. and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. and the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. and the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of the gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in the front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord." And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart And when he, go, when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear." 
On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall wear the coat and checkerwork of fine linen. and You shall make a turban of fine linen. And you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. And shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. That they may serve me as priests. You shall make them for linen, make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. You get a sense of just how elaborate and intricate these garments were uh, that the high priest and the priests beneath him would wear. There are together uh, six pieces that they would wear, not including those linen undergarments that you find at the end of the passage. And they are described with three words in verse 2. They are holy garments, and they're made for glory and for beauty. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Now that gives you, in that one verse, an indication of where we're headed and how you should understand all of the details that follow you. Get a sense of what this might have looked like here in this image. The garments that we are looking at today weren't just utilitarian in nature. They weren't like overalls that are designed with lots of pockets so that you have places to put all of the things that you're going to need when you have a particular job. They're more like the kind of regimental attire that a high-ranking official would wear serving under Her Majesty the Queen. You know, some of those big hats don't make any sense to us, but they serve a purpose. And they call attention to the glory, not of the one wearing it, but of the one that they represent, the one that they're attached to. And it's the same here. The, cl- the clothing reflects the glory of the one these priests represent. Here it's the Lord's own 
glory, the Lord's own character and person that these priests represent. And the the very clothing that they wear uh, is representative of the, the significance of the work that they do. It's significance of the kind of occasion uh, that is represented when they go in before the holy place. Our culture today is growing increasingly more informal in its attire, and I suppose that's all right on on one level, Uh, but it's still the case, generally speaking, that uh, when it comes to certain kinds of occasions, we pull out the, our best clothes out of the, the back of the closet. When there is a wedding or a funeral, you, you look for your, your, your finest attire. Why is that? Why do we do that? We understand on some level that, that how we present ourselves is to some degree a reflection of our, our understanding of the weightiness of the day. What's going on? That's the idea here. Everything about the priest's clothing here said, here are men that are set apart. They're set apart for the work of the Lord. And the garments that they're wearing reflect the privilege and the nearness that they have with the Lord God Almighty. They're not common garments. They're not things that the average Israelite would have worn on a day-to-day basis or ever. These are garments for glory and for beauty. And notice also that not only has the Lord uh, prepared this whole tribe of men who are going to go in and minister before the presence of the Lord, but he's also prepared men, skillful men and women, to make these holy garments. And he has filled them, the text says, with the spirit of, of skill. We're going to see that in even clearer detail next week. It's not incidental that the very first time we hear of the Lord filling someone with the Spirit uh, is not a priest. It's not a king. It's not someone like Abraham to whom these great and precious promises were given. They're craftsmen. Men that were going to do daily, you might say, ordinary work on one level for the Lord. But God had equipped them also for the work that they were going to do. Well, the passage here starts with the ephod. This is is the one piece of, of, of clothing that is most clearly associated with the ministry of priests. Now, what catches your attention most? when you look at the description of the ephod? Well, it has two shoulder pieces. I'll answer the question for you. On which are set two onyx stones. They are enclosed in settings of gold filigree. They are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone, the names of the remaining six on the other. So, so prominently positioned on the priest right here, up on the shoulders, as they would walk into the holy place, not hidden away, not tucked away in some pocket, but fixed on the shoulders, every Hebrew child could find the name of their people represented before the presence 
of the Lord on this priestly garment. The text calls them stones of remembrance. If you look at verse 12, it says, And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. So here, on the shoulders of this high priest is a sign, a sign of God's covenant faithfulness that he will remember his people and the promise that he has made to them. Aaron is going to go in and he is going to bear their names before the face of God. He's going to call the names of the people to the attention of the Lord, as it were, reminding him of his promise that they will be his people and he will be their God. Not every people had their names on those stones. Consider that. Only those that God had called to to himself, only those whom he had purchased, only those who had believed in his promise. And if that was true of you, there you were engraved on the shoulder of the mediator going in before the presence of God by his ministers. Now that whole idea gets reinforced when, when you get to the breast piece. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled Work, the Lord says. And again, on that breast piece, you've got all of these beautiful, beautiful stones. Um, they're, they're very carefully arrayed. They're, he's given very strict instru- instructions about how they're t- to be arrayed. Four rows, three stones each, engraved like signets according to the names of the sons of Israel. What is this designed to teach us? Again, Priests are going to serve as mediators. They're going to go in before the presence of God on behalf of man. Man is not going to go in. The problem of sin here means that not just anyone can go in before the presence of God. They need a mediator. They need, like us, a representative, someone that can go in before the Lord, which is exactly what you see here. In chapters 28 and 29, the people cannot enter on their own. And yet, in the mercy and grace of God, he's made a way so that they can be represented. So that they can be represented before the Father by someone else. Someone that has been specially qualified, specially prepared, specially fit to go in before the very presence of God and represent the people of God before the presence of God. And not only that, but also to come out of the presence of God and represent the presence of God, the Lord, to the people. To come out and proclaim, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace to proclaim God's favor and his blessing upon the people. I hope that you're beginning to see already the way that this is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, to the true and better Moses, the true and better great high priest, the one who bears our names before the Father. You might think about, about the way the book of Revelation speaks of the Lamb's book of life everyone whose names are written in it, that the crucified and risen Lamb of God has a registry 
a record of everyone who has believed on him before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that he has promised to confess our names before the Father. The Bible tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us before the Father. He prays for you, beloved. Did you know that? If you've believed on Jesus Christ, that Jesus prays for you, he prays for you like he prayed for Peter, that your faith might not fail. Jesus prays perfect prayers on your behalf. He always lives to make intercession. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on one of the big problems that was connected with the priesthood under the old covenant, uh, which was that the priests who were ministering there were always dying. (laughs) There was this big issue. They kept passing away. So he says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is alive today praying for his people. He holds his priesthood permanently. And the upshot of all of this, the writer to the Hebrews says, is that if you put your faith in him, if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, that he will save you to the very end. He is able to save to the uttermost those that trust in him. He represents you before the Father, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 30, there is a reference to the Urim and the Thummim that went in the the breastpiece of judgment. Uh, Some translations call it a breastpiece for making decisions. That gives you an indication, perhaps, of how these items might have been used. You'll notice that there are no instructions in the Bible on how they were actually used. Uh, that, That tells us that there was probably already an understanding in place at the time when this was written of how they were, they were used. And you can look at other um, references in the scriptures to see how they were used, or at least to get an indication. Uh, some scholars think that they were stones, maybe two stones. Perhaps that the words represent, represent something like the idea of light and dark, Uh, and that uh, they could be cast and the Lord would reveal his will and disclose uh, what his will was in a particular matter. Uh, When David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, he called for Abiathar, the the priest, and said, bring the ephod here. So it seems clear that the Lord uh, used this, at least at times, uh, with the priest Uh, to help them discern what his will was. I think we should also be clear to say that this was not the normal way that God spoke to his people and that there are many warnings in the scriptures against uh, all manner of divination. 
Uh, Hebrews chapter one and, and verse one is clear to say that in former times, God spoke to his people uh, through the prophets in many times and in many ways, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by the son, that Jesus Christ is God's final definitive word, his final definitive revelation to his people. Note also that these aren't something that every Israelite were walking around with, uh, that these were given to the priests. Verse 31, you move on to the robe. One um, point of interest here are the golden bells at the hymn, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all the way around. Well, why are they there? Look at verse 35, if you have your Bible open. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. That's why they're there. So that he does not die. The bells are there to prevent the death of the high priest. That suggests that there, if there are no bells or the bells can't be heard, Aaron is going to meet his death. How are we to understand this? From a human vantage point, we might think of this uh, almost like a doorbell, uh, a way to signal that we are entering into the house of God. Of course, God knows perfectly well where Aaron is. God doesn't need bells to, to give him some, kinds of, some kind of heads up. But Aaron might. Aaron might be served well by bells ringing around the hem of his garment to emphasize the holiness of the task that he has set about, to emphasize the need for careful preparation as he begins to think about entering in to the presence of God. The bells are for the priests, not for the Lord. By the way, you might have heard it taught somewhere along the way that people would tie ropes around the ankle of priests, uh, the, uh, the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, when they would go into the Holy of Holies so that if he died, they could pull him out. That isn't true. That's not in the Bible. It doesn't show up until 1,300-something years after Christ. But there are bells. There are bells to remind them that they cannot bring their impurity before the Lord, that there must be preparation done exactly according to the pattern that God had given them. Now on top of the priest's head was a turban. The turban had a plate of gold on which was inscribed holy to the Lord. Now as you think about that, I want you to look at what verse 38 says. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Do you catch what the Lord is saying there? 
all of the people's unholiness, all of their sin and guilt and shortcomings are taken into full view here. So much so that the text recognizes that even their very best offerings remain impure. Think about that. Even the, the, the very offerings that they are offering in light of their guiltiness are impure. Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Yet here's the wonderful thing. Provision has been made. Even here, the people are accepted. Why? Not because they were perfect, not because they brought this perfect gift, but because they had a representative. They had a representative going in on their behalf. They had an advocate, someone to plead on their behalf before the presence of God. Beloved, do you have an advocate today? Do you have someone to represent you before the Father? 1 John 2 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And by what means do we come before the Lord today? Where does our confidence lie? What precedes these words that they may be accepted before the Lord in this new covenant era? We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous In him, we're able to come. In him, we can come before the throne of grace and be received as holy to the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's our only hope. Now, if you look at chapter uh, chapter 29, it brings us to the actual consecration of the priest. There are three stages here, and then they're followed by three separate sacrifices. First, there's the washing. Garments for glory and for beauty cannot be put on the unclean. And so there is a ceremonial washing here. Secondly, there is a robing. All of those garments would be placed over the the linen undergarments. If you were here at the end of uh, the Ten Commandments, you remember the instructions God gave for the building of of altars and how uh, the priests were to have on those those undergarments so that their nakedness would not be exposed as they went up the steps. A picture of our, our, our uncleanness and of sin. There's also a connection here uh, to, to pagan worship and a desire to, to, to uh, push away from the things that characterize pagan uh, worship and idolatry. In pagan worship, the idea was is if you wanted uh, fertility in the land and in, in the people, then uh, there were opportunities at the pagan temple for uh, sexual practice so you could encourage the gods uh, to, to, to bless the land with fertility. Well, the Lord uh, says, no, we are not going to be characterized that by that. My people are to have their nakedness clothed. That is not to be exposed. There's anointing. A special anointing oil is poured over their heads. They're set apart for holy office here. So you have this wonderful picture, uh, this Incredible picture of holiness and glory and beauty of setting apart and oil 
running down the beard. And then you get to chapter 29 and verse 10. Look there with me. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now here, you see Aaron's own problems begin to rise to the surface. Do you see it here? Aaron needs a sacrifice too. Aaron needs blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And he, like the people he's representing, is a sinner. He needs forgiveness. And there was no hiding the fact of that. This great big bull is brought in and slaughtered. Aaron would lay his hands on the head of the bull, symbolically transferring the guilt of his sin onto this animal, visually depicting this idea that in this animal there was a substitute. The blood would be used to cleanse the altar. The best parts would be burned on the altar. Everything here is is designed to draw our attention to the insufficiency of Aaron. The fact that he is unfit to come before the presence of the Lord on his own as he stands. He too needs cleansing. He too needs atonement. Hebrews 5 and verse 3 puts it in these terms. It says, He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. It says that every high priest chosen from among men is beset with weakness. I wonder whether you can identify with that statement. It's said of Aaron and his sons that, that that is why he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Because he himself, he knows what it is to stand in their shoes. He's beset himself with weakness. And that should be a reminder to every human vessel that seeks to be an instrument of God's grace in the lives of others, that we are beset with weakness ourselves. Neither you nor I are priests, but do you feel your inadequacy to come before the Lord on your own? We're beset with weakness. George Herbert Herbert was a 17th century a pastor and poet, 
he wrestled with this whole reality as he thought about the prospect of ministering to his people. He wrote a poem titled simply Aaron, and it's based on our passage today. He says, holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. Profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. So too with the first Aaron when it came to the condition of his heart. You know, he may be God's provision for the moment, but he will not do for God's people forever. And that becomes all the more clear as time goes on. In fact, in just a couple chapters, as you move along, uh, we're going to see Moses coming down off the mountain. And what do we discover? Well, Aaron himself is caught up in this whole golden calf Affair. In fact, while Moses is receiving the instructions about the need for men like Aaron to have guilt offerings, Aaron is engaged in idolatrous worship. He's leading the people in this, and he's not the only one. In fact, it's, it's almost as if every time priests are mentioned in the Bible, it's sinfulness that comes up. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire, which God had not commanded, on the altar. You get a little further along into redemptive history and into the time of the judges, and Hophni and Phinehas are there, the two sons of Eli. What are they doing? Well, they're corrupting the office. They're taking swipes at the sacrifice, taking the best parts for themselves, leaving the dregs for God. There are many other examples. So you have this tragic disparity uh, between the glory of the outward vestments that these men are wearing and the inward condition of the heart, the depravity of what is on the inside, all of which prompts this question. Can it be that a sinful man would represent other sinful men before the presence of God? Can it be that this is God's final design, his final purpose to have a sinful man represent other sinful men before the holiness of his presence? Can that ever truly satisfy him? That's precisely the question that the writer to the Hebrews is wrestling with in Hebrews chapter 7. He says in Hebrews 7 and verse 11 that if perfection had been attainable, through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You see, Aaron and his sons, they're clothed with these holy garments. They look beautiful. They're clothed for glory and for beauty. But they weren't glorious enough. 
They weren't holy through and through. That's why they couldn't stay in their office forever. That's why we needed something more. That's why we needed someone more. The writer goes on, he says, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The Lord Jesus Christ offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin. The final once for all sacrifice, God's perfect sacrifice. We read earlier that while the best parts of that bull were sacrificed on the altar, that the flesh and the skin and the dung were taken outside the camp. The writer to the Hebrews again picks up on this and he says, aha, here is a picture of Christ. Christ wasn't crucified within the city. He was nailed to the cross outside the city, outside the camp as an offering for sin. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his blood. He went outside of the camp to the place of the unclean to bring us to God. In verse 15, we come to the first of two offerings of a ram The first is a whole burnt offering. The entire animal would be offered up to God, symbolizing unreserved, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. In Romans 12, in verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word sacrifice here is the same word that you find in Exodus 29 and verse 18 for offering. The connection here is clear. We don't have a priesthood today in the way that we did under the old covenant. But in a way that is not dissimilar from the priesthood, we have been set apart. We have been consecrated to the Lord and not just in part. Not just some piece of our lives. The whole of our lives is to be given over to God. Consumed, you could say, by devotion to the Lord. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is your reasonable service. Your acceptable service to the Lord. The second ram is the ram of ordination. This is the only sacrifice that is distinct to the priesthood. And the the blood would be taken and it would be smeared on the ear of the the, the tip of the right ear and on the thumb of the right uh, hand and on the great toe of the right foot. Saying perhaps, you've been consecrated now to me, to me alone. Now incline your ear to me. Let your hands be about my work. Wherever you go, go in the name of the Lord. 
The only other place in the Bible you find a similar kind of ritual uh, is in the cleansing of a leper, a leper who has been cleansed and an offering is given up. Both of these uh, situations hold in common this idea of moving from one state to another, from a state of uh, uncleanness, ceremonially being ceremonially unclean to clean, and of uh, laity to clergy, to priest, wholehearted dedication to the Lord. The chapter 29 concludes with the Lord prescribing daily offerings, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. They were to wake and to sleep to the rhythm of constant sacrifice, constant spilling of blood. And it's in that rhythm, the Lord says in verse 42, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Here you have the purpose statement of God's redemptive work summed up just in a few words. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping God who brought them out that I might dwell with them. And every day there was this steady, regular remembrance of a sacrificial offering that would, would remind them of this good news, of his purpose, his promise to give them a substitute, to sanctify them for himself. Brothers and sisters, in a similar way, we come today to remember Christ. We come regularly. We come day by day, week by week, to remember Jesus Christ, our great high priest, his finished work, his sacrificial death, his glory, his beauty. It was when George Herbert meditated on these truths, on the perfection and loveliness of Christ, that he went on to write this. He said, only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could not have rest. In him, I am well dressed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the robes of righteousness, which we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the priesthood of all believers for that glorious news that as we come through Christ, we come to your very throne.
God, we thank you for the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest, that he is both priest and sacrifice. Lord, thank you that we were ransomed from the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Lord, let us hold fast our confession today. Lord, we rejoice that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so with confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace and help in time of need. We are in need today. Oh Lord, we look to you. Be magnified in us. Take us and use us, Lord, a living sacrifice. Amen.